those of you who are visiting with us, we're very delighted that you're here with us today. And we have been studying on Sunday mornings a series of lessons from the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is one of those four prison epistles, prison letters that Paul wrote uh, to churches and an individual so that they might know the importance of how the gospel was being carried into all the world and how they were to live. I've entitled this series of lessons Down by the Riverside because that's where it all began with the household of Lydia and then further in regard to the jailer and as that congregation grew into a great and faithful congregation. This morning we're going to study together verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. And so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open there to the book of Philippians chapter 1. In order to introduce our lesson, I would like to ask a question. Have you ever been discouraged by the persecution of others when you were only trying to do what was right? Have you been attempting to try to live the Christian life and even to promote and encourage the Word of God and then have someone to attack you, to persecute you for your teaching and for your faith? I will tell you that in the Bible, the persecutor often sees his desire to persecute someone come back on him. I like to use just two very simple illustrations from Scripture. If you go back to the book of Esther and you go to chapter 7, you will see the results of some events that took place. King Ahasuerus was the ruler. He ended up marrying uh, Esther the queen. And King Ahasuerus had a man serving in his court, a very important official, by the na man's name of Haman. Haman desired to have a position of honor, and he wanted people to give him that respect and that honor. There was a man who sat at the gate whose name was Mordecai, and Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. Because of that, Haman decided that not only did he hate Mordecai, he hated all the people of Mordecai, that is the Jews, and sought to have them killed. Mordecai was so hated by Haman that Haman built some gallows to hang Mordecai on. No ordinary set of gallows. Seventy-five feet high. He wanted it to be a public spectacle. He wanted it to be a message to everybody. He intended to persecute not only Mordecai, but the Jewish people. The events that transpired was that King Ahasuerus had a very sleepless night. And by the providence of God, the annals were read before him. And he found out that Mordecai had done a great service in protecting the king's life. When you get to chapter 7 and verse 9, you will find the situation. Now Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, one of the eunuchs said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, 
who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. You see, here's a man who planned to persecute someone else and it turned back on him. Let me give you another illustration. If you go to Daniel chapter 6, Darius is the king and he has 120 presidents and satraps who are serving under him. He has three men. He has made what we would call administrators or directors. Daniel is one of them. These people sought to have Daniel deposed. And they looked for any kind of mistake that he could make in his service before the king, and they couldn't find one. And so finally they persuaded the king to pass a law that no one could pray to anyone other than the king for a period of 30 days. They did that to try to trap Daniel. Daniel went in and prayed as he had before, And then they reminded the king of the law that he had passed. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. The king was deeply saddened by that. However, after a night in which the lions did not tear Daniel, the king arrives the next morning. Daniel is safe. The angels of the Lord have shut up their mouths. They cannot bite Daniel But if you'll notice Daniel 6, 44, and the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. You see, the persecutor was trying to remove somebody Mordecai, or in this case, Daniel. And the persecutors saw things come back on them. Paul's enemies wanted Paul dead. If they could not kill him, they at least wanted him held by the Roman authorities. In jail, what could Paul do? You see, this letter that is being sent to the Philippians is to try to tell them... Yes, I am in prison. But that doesn't stop us. And so Philippians 1, 12 through 18, will show what Paul can do. We're going to look at three things in our lesson this morning. We're going to look at verse 12, the first part of that, and look at the persecutors or the persecution that was brought on Paul. Then we're going to look at the progress in the latter part of verse 12. And then we're going to jump to verses 15 through 18 and see the preaching that took place, some in pretense and some that was pure. Let's begin with verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Take the first part of that. I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me. What things happened? What brought all this to pass? Why did they need to know about these things? It always helps to know the context. The events that led up to Paul's imprisonment. He was no evildoer. If you go back to Luke's account in the book of Acts, 
in Acts 21, Paul is arrested, falsely accused. When he stands before Felix, before Festus, and before Agrippa, all three agree that he did not do anything worthy of chains, worthy of death. They needed to understand that this Paul that was in prison was not a man that deserved to be there. From the perspective of the enemies, they had chained the most effective preacher of the gospel. When you read the New Testament account, who more than Paul was a great preacher of the gospel? Who gave more time, more effort, more energy than did Paul. Now you might think that that would bring discouragement on the part of Paul. Here I am and what can I do? Well, I'd like for you to look at how this affected Paul. He planned on going to Rome, but not this way. He had in his mind, I've got a, an agenda that I want to accomplish. Acts 19 verse 21, when he, these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem and saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Do you not suppose the way as Paul is describing this, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, after that he's going to plan to go into Rome, but he does not plan on going in chains, being led by a Roman soldier. But he learned that while they could chain Paul, they could not chain God's word. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Paul would say, you can put chains on my hands, you can put chains on my feet, but you can't chain the word of God. You see, Paul was able to see the chains as an opportunity. When he writes the Colossians, which was also one of these prison letters, he says in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Meanwhile also praying for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I make, make it manifest, make it open, make it known as I ought to speak. Paul said, just because I've got chains doesn't mean that I shouldn't be speaking, shouldn't be preaching. Pray that we'll have an open door, an opportunity. Some of the church may have seen this as a defeat or a setback. The preacher of the gospel is no longer able to go about freely. But Paul is able to see it for what it is. It is an opportunity. Now that brings us to the second part of verse 12. Look with me now as we look at that verse again. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He says these things now are doing things that are progressing the gospel, furthering the gospel. When you think about furthering or progressing, you always have to think about things that hinder. 
And Paul does address some hindrances to the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, he says about his being supported by the church. He says, we've not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. You know, you and I can make choices, personal choices, that may end up making it more difficult to preach the gospel. Paul said, we don't want to do anything that would do that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, you ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth. You can have people who will come in and teach false doctrine, and that can hinder the truth. Romans 1 and verse 18 from the American Standard says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth and unrighteousness. People just living ungodly lives can make it more difficult. You have a congregation where you may have two or three people who are doing things they ought not do, and then it makes it difficult to preach the gospel because people look at you personally. But this persecution actually helped further the gospel. It was able to get the gospel in new places, places that it might not have otherwise been able to go. Imagine now, you're in Rome and you're in this place where there are important people. Paul has now been placed in the middle of them. That gives him an opportunity to preach and an opportunity to teach. Sometimes difficulties can make us better. Sometimes difficulties can open the door for the preaching of the gospel. Notice with me 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I look at opportunities like this and I glory in them because they are opportunities. And then Paul will describe two positive results that come from this. If you look with me now at verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, and in verse 13, Paul will talk about the palace guard is the way the New King James translates it. The Greek word is praetorium, and it describes either a place or a people. And we'll see that in just a moment here. I don't think that should be too difficult for us to understand because we use words like that today. Someone will say, I am going to church. By that, they may mean they're going to assemble with the saints, which is the way the New Testament uses it in reference to the people. However, somebody may say, I've got to go by the church and pick up something, and they may be referring to the place where the church meets. We use that in our current vernacular as well. We will say the White House has done this or done that. We don't really mean that that building that's, on Pennsylvania Avenue did something, we mean that the occupants of it. In the same way, Praetorium could refer to the building, the place where those in charge met, or it could refer to the people. 
Notice with me verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. That word palace guard there is the same word that in Mark 15 and verse 16 says, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. It's a place. Or in Acts 23 verse 35, and it says he commanded them to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now what did that do? In Philippians 4, verse 22, all the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. Do you see verse 13? He says, now the whole praetorium, the whole palace guard, everyone who is there is able to see that my chains are in Christ. They know I'm not an evildoer. They know I'm here because of my preaching of the gospel. That's one of the positive results. And then in verse 14, those who saw that in Paul became even more bold to preach. Look with me at verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They see Paul standing strong, and now they're going to stand strong. They see Paul preaching in the face of these Roman authorities, and they say, if he can do that, I can stand strong too. So you see the persecution, and then you see the progress that resulted from it. Which leads me to verses 15 through 18. Because there were some other results that came from that. Let's read now verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preached Christ even from envy and strife. And some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition. Not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice. Now I want you to notice one thing before we proceed further. Both groups were preaching Christ. That is, they were preaching the truth. And that's good. Paul said, I'll rejoice in that. I'll be glad that for whatever motivation, for whatever reason, the gospel is being preached. Sometimes when you read in the Bible, there is a contrast between those who are preaching the truth and those who are preaching error. In this case, both are preaching the truth. I can't rejoice when error is being preached. I can rejoice when the truth is being preached. But I want you to notice a contrast of the two motives. Paul is going to describe those preaching from a bad motive. He says that one is motivated by preaching from envy. The original word here means resentful of another's advantage. 
I try my best to think of a good way to illustrate this. And if you'll permit me to use this illustration. On Saturdays during the fall, there are people who get together and play a game called football. And some people have their team that they root for. And then a lot of people have teams that they root against. If their team that they are rooting against does well, they are resentful of them. That's envy. I want you to see that people see Paul and they see that he is doing well, that he's accomplishing something, and they are resentful that Paul is able to do that. Strife. It means contentious. It means a person wanting to stir up trouble. They're looking at Paul and they're seeing what good he was able to accomplish and they resent that and they're going to try to create difficulties and strife in that. He said these people are motivated by a selfish ambition. The original word here began to talk about people who were so self-motivated that they promoted themselves. It means a selfish party spirit. We would put it in our language today, politicking. That is promoting themselves. He said these people are preaching so that they can promote themselves. Not sincerely. That is, they're not motivated by a clean and a pure desire. They don't want to preach because they care about people. They don't preach because they want to save souls. They are preaching out of an impure motive. And then he uses the term, whether in pretense or in truth. The original word for pretense here has an excellent illustration in the Bible. It's found in Acts 27 and verse 30. If you'll remember, while Paul was on his journey to Rome, they had a shipwreck. While they were going through that very terrible storm, Luke records what happens. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense, of putting out anchors from the prow or the bow. They're wanting to go and put down this little lifeboat, skiff, but they're making out like they're going to drop the anchors. It's a pretense. It's a show. These people that Paul is describing here that are his enemies are people who are trying to pretend that they're motivated by a good desire, but are not. And Paul even tells us why. Supposing to add affliction to my chains. If we go and we preach hard and we preach strong, that may make it harder for Paul. That may make these people who have Paul held in chains want to make his life even worse. Now, on the other hand, Paul talked about people who were righteously motivated. He said, some preach Christ from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. 
The word means to think good, to wish good for someone. It's a person who's not motivated by what they might benefit from it, but what someone else might benefit from it. When he contrasts those who are not doing so sincerely, he says the other do so out of love. They love Paul. They want to do what is right. They love the church. They love Christ. That's the kind of right motivation that one should have. Then he says whether it is in pretense or in truth. People who are sincere, genuine, truthful. And then he also answers the question why. Knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The word there for appointed is also meaning to set as if you chose a person, you gave him a job, and then he carries out that task. These people know that Paul has been given this job by God to defend the truth. And they're going to stand there with him and for him as he preaches God's word. Let me sort of summarize this together. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult situations, but that doesn't mean that it can't turn out for good. In fact, if you and I are doing what God says to do, it will always turn out for good. Maybe not the kind of good we think, but in God's terms, that which is good. Sometimes we find others who are motivated by less than honorable motives. But that doesn't mean that good cannot be accomplished. You and I have to realize, whatever situation we find ourselves in life, we can do what is right, and good can be accomplished from it. Let us make sure that we do what is right for the right reason regardless of the circumstances and the furtherance of the gospel will take place. If you will take your songbooks now as we prepare to sing the invitation song, it's very possible that of our number here this morning we have those who have not yet obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're worried about some persecution from your family, from your friends. If you are, then let me reassure you, you can overcome that. And in fact, it will all be great in the end. Because God will bless you. It may be that you have learned the truth and you're ready now to respond to it. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith in him, and be baptized, if you'll come forward down here, we'll assist you in your obedience of the gospel, baptize you for the remission of your sins. If you're a Christian and you have sin in your life and you need to make that right with the Lord and you would like for us to pray with you, then we also invite you to come as together we stand and sing.